0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the form3.tech engineering podcast. My name is Kevin Holditch, Head of Platform Engineering at Form3. Today, I'm really excited that I've been joined by Marcel Molnar, who's an ethical hacker at Form3. How's it going today, Marcel?
1: Hi, Kevin. It's going great. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Cool. So today, I think we're going to have a really interesting talk on what everyone finds super cool about engineering, which is hacking. So do you want to start by sort of telling us how you got into hacking and what your role is at Form3.
1: Sure. Um, so I got into hacking at a very early age. I think it was like, I don't know, probably the age of eight when I saw a documentary on hacking on one of the uh, channels on TV. And I thought this, this is something amazing. I was, I was always into like things that required you to get some hidden knowledge, you know, like magic tricks and uh, things like that. And it was sort of like the same vibe uh, just with computers. And, you know, I was already in love with all those. so. Um, I thought this would be a uh good thing to uh to pursue. And of course later on I, I learned that you can actually do this as a job which is which is amazing. Uh and that's <laughs> that's how I got into all of this. Um and yeah, my job at Form3 is I'm yeah, my job title is an ethical hacker, uh, which is uh some people say is uh bit uh you know sounds like a sober bricklayer. It doesn't really make sense, but uh but our job is essentially to test the form 3 infrastructure the applications and just uh, have a sort of offensive security mindset on all the engineering that's going on in form 3.
0: cool awesome what i'd like to start our journey on this conversation is talking about a website called hack the box so for those who don't know i'm just going to set the scene here so hack the box is a um a website you can go onto and solve challenges or try and gain root access to machines and it's kind of a really good way to open your eyes to security. Um, do you want to explain a bit more about the Hack the Box platform and how realistic is that
1: to sort of real life? Sure, absolutely. So I think Hack the Box is an amazing tool for, for beginners who are just getting familiar with hacking. And uh, the basic concept is you have uh, they basically built a framework which allows you to start uh, virtual machines. And uh, each of these machines run services that have like Beateam uh, vulnerabilities that you can try and exploit. And uh, it's a very good exercise, I think, for learning various things. So you can learn network security with this uh, on all different platforms. You can learn Windows, Linux, exploitation, exploit development, uh, web application hacking. And uh, it's all very gamified. So you can like score points for each machine you uh, crack and get on the leaderboards and everything. But there's also a very good community behind all this. So people who are creating the machines and people who are solving them uh, are like in constant communication. So you can go onto forums and and uh, check, uh get hints or or see walkthroughs of other machines. And it's just a very, very good learning opportunity, I think. You can learn about all the different techniques. Of course, it's uh uh varies between machines, uh, not just the quality, but you know the the sort of things you can learn. Uh, so you have to sort of approach it with a with a basic knowledge in in IT, I think. Uh, but even even we use it uh, as an internal, but not training tool. But we have sessions here in four and three when we just sit down and do uh, do uh, hack the box machines in the an afternoon, and and it's a great great fun.
0: So how approachable do you feel like something like hack the boxes? For an engineer that knows programming to a good level? Is it, is it good in the way that it can open your eyes to how exploits work and then how to be defensive against them? Like, what is the skill set needed to start kind of
1: getting into hacking? I think if someone has a background in engineering and programming, that's, that's a perfect, uh, perfect set of skills to go on. Um, when I started out, obviously, Hack the Box wasn't around like 10, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, but we had something similar called uh, hack this site i think this, that might be still around which was a very very basic form of hack the box and uh, even you know as a teenager who was just getting into programming and getting into knowing operating systems that was something i could uh, i could benefit from and i think it's the same with hack the box especially if you have some coding knowledge because uh, most of the time after you get a certain level of access to a machine you can just look at the source code look at the configuration and from there it's it's really just sort of reverse engineering reverse thinking uh, where you can absolutely apply your knowledge and uh and i think for an engineer there can be a lot of like aha moments when you look at the code and the configuration and say this is something that you know i might have done wrong if if i were in the same place so yeah, I think it's absolutely approachable and beneficial.
0: Cool. So it's probably something that's good for all engineers to be comfortable with and and try out, would you say, because it's going to benefit their the quality of the day to day engineering work they're going to do, because it's going to open their eyes to the security attack vectors that they might otherwise think
1: about. Yeah, absolutely. So depending on, you know, I mean, engineers, uh, are required to specialize. So depending on what kind of language you are developing in, you can pick the machines that have, I don't know, Java or Go-based services, or the specific platform that you are developing for. And then you can really, really see the the issues that are specific to your platform, to your coding language. And uh, I think that's that's a very powerful learning tool.
0: Awesome. Um, I think I've noticed during lockdown that there's been a massive rise in some of these bug bounty um, hunting platforms. So uh, platforms such as HackerOne, where you're encouraged by companies to go out and find vulnerabilities on their platform and gain rewards. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and some of these
1: platforms? Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, yeah, uh, that is that was exactly the trend that I saw. A lot of people got into this uh, in the last yeah last one year, and I think the reason is you know just people had more free time to to experiment. But again, just like uh, Hack the Box, these, these platforms are a great way to, uh, to try out new skills and new tools and, and, uh, and just expand on your knowledge. Uh, for, for people who are starting out in, in bug bounty hunting, I would probably suggest going with one of the platforms that are vetted bug bounty platforms, so where you have to kind of pass a sort of job interview to join because these usually have a, a stronger community behind them and uh, make it better uh, experience for the for the bug hunters who are starting out, and also uh, better learning opportunity if, uh, if you are just getting into this sort of thing. So
0: what does the job interview kind of entail then to be able to get access to some of these
1: platforms? Usually the job interviews on, on platforms like this are not so different from like an, regular company job interview for an ethical hacker role, usually you are presented with a CTF-like uh, scenario that you have to solve. Um, most of these platforms uh, do uh, rely heavily on uh, web application hacking, so you are almost sure to expect some uh, tasks around web app hacking. Uh, but most of them allow you to uh, select different categories, and uh, even if you are you know, not Absolutely great at infrastructure hacking. You can just skip that module, and complete the one for uh, web application hacking, and then you will be assigned to projects which, which require to do web app hacking, or you know mobile application hacking, or the different ones, or even reverse engineering. So they they give you a lot of freedom uh, as a as an individual who are just who's just starting out, and essentially at these companies you work sort of as a contractor, so uh, it gives you a lot of flexibility and and. Uh, some good way to, to apply the knowledge that you already have.
0: Okay. So how do you actually earn money out of these platforms then? And is there a decent
1: living to be had? Um, That's a tough question. So with all of these platforms, uh, what you have to prepare for is that there's a very tough competition. So especially on open platforms, uh, thousands of people are going to be swarming the same target. And you know, uh, unless you are very, very lucky, you are not going to get any cash out from low-hanging fruits. Uh, so that's something to be prepared for. But if you really dedicate yourself and, and research a target and uh, specialize in, uh, in different subsets of vulnerabilities. So for example, on these platforms, I usually specialize in, a, in mobile application hacking. And, uh, and in that, even in that, I specialize in reverse engineering mobile application code. Because that's something that I notice not a lot of people do. So, if you find yourself something a small segment that you are really good at, then you can score some some very good vulnerabilities. Uh, and on the closed platforms, the the life cycle of these vulnerabilities is usually that the companies pay you upfront. So, instead of validating uh, the the vulnerability with the client that they are working for, they just pay you upfront and then pass it on to the client. As opposed to open sites, where the client has to first uh, validate the issue, and then it takes much much longer time. So this is why I, I usually suggest going with uh, with vetted sites. Uh, but either way, um, if if your issue gets accepted and you are the first or the best quality uh, report for that given issue, then there are you know hundreds or even thousands of dollars that can be made on a, on a single vulnerability.
0: Okay, interesting. So you mentioned reverse engineering mobile binaries there. So I'd like to dig into that a little bit. So What would kind of be the process of trying to find a a vulnerability? So you'll get, you get given this binary. So then what, what are the steps to sort of find a vulnerability from there?
1: So it really uh, varies between Android and iOS. Uh, On Android, you can just pull the binaries essentially from the phone. If you, if you run a rooted Android phone and uh, depending on the framework, the application is written in. You can most likely decompile the application and almost get a, a source code equivalent representation of the of the application code. So the process there is is uh, fairly simple. If someone is just starting out with uh, with mobile application hacking, I would definitely suggest them to go with Android. On iOS, it's it's much more difficult because iOS being the closed ecosystem it is, um, you really really have to be up to date on all the tools and jailbreaks because uh, every time there's a new jailbreak version that usually breaks all of the tools that you had in uh, previously. So uh, you have to be continuously doing this to, to be, uh, effective in, uh, in iOS reverse engineering and on iOS also, uh, you are, yeah, the applications are mostly written in objective C. So you won't be getting a nice decompiled application source. You will have to be running, um, something like a remote debugger. Uh, I usually use IDA pro, uh, to, to look at the application flow and, uh, you will probably need to learn some uh, ARM uh, assembly as well to be effective at that. But just to so not to scare people, so it's not uh, usually finding vulnerabilities is not that sophisticated. You can usually get away with uh, with just some simple control flow analysis or looking at strings, looking at libraries. And just trying to figure out what are the major functions on the on the application that might be happening on the client side because that's the part where you actually want to do reverse engineering
0: okay so it could be as simple as looking through the decompile code for for this binary of an application and then if it's making like an api call going well how does it authenticate when it makes this api call have the had the developers just hard-coded the token into the app Would that be an example of a simple vulnerability and then you can leak that token out and you can then gain access to that API as an example?
1: Yeah, exactly. Actually, that's a a very common issue. So uh, especially, you know, uh, in the mobile application space where companies tend to rely on a lot of different cloud services, you know, like Google Maps, uh, different drive services, uh, advertising services, there are a lot of tokens flying around and uh, not just the the fact that sometimes developers integrate these tokens into into their applications but they also don't control the permissions of these tokens on the on the service side so for example if you get this token you can probably use it to um use uh access services uh at the expense of the, of the owner of the token so uh yeah that's that's a common issue
0: okay so it could be a token that gained your access to aws
1: Services as an example,
0: but rather than just being able to do stuff as the user of that application intended, you could also maybe average access all of the AWS services that that hosting company are running and kind of toy with it as you wish.
1: Yes, exactly. Or just you know ramp up the cost of uh, of the service for the user by abusing a service constantly or querying. A- I'm not sure what is the best to do this on AWS maybe start instances or something like that if you have the privilege okay
0: so often in the hacking space I hear certain terms um, banded around so we hear red teaming and we ha- we hear pen testing can you explain to us a bit about uh, what those terms mean and what's involved in those techniques
1: sure um well essentially so traditionally uh security testing uh, about 10 years ago meant pen testing and pen testing is just really about taking an application or taking a segment of a network and looking for vulnerabilities, doing security tests, security checks on a with a very, very narrow scope. So for example, doing pen testing on a web application and looking for web application vulnerabilities. And uh, this is very good when you are trying to uh, integrate it, for example, in, a, in the development pipeline. So you release a, a, soft, a piece of software and you do pen testing on it. Uh, if the coverage is right, then you can probably uh, find uh, the majority of vulnerabilities that exist in the software. However, this type of testing uh, has been uh, evolving and companies, uh, especially consultancy companies, started offering uh, services that not just cover applications and network segments, but also cover uh, security controls. Because while software vulnerabilities are dangerous and and uh, exploitable and can have a huge security impact on a company. M- a majority of security issues emerge when uh, these pieces of software live in the ecosystem. So for example, uh, you can have very huge vulnerabilities um, in a, in the process itself, the way these software are used and, uh, and deployed uh, in an infrastructure. Um, A very good example would be uh something like this this token leakage because just by looking at the functionality of the software you might not be able to uh or doing a code audit, you might not be able to spot the permissions on a token but by looking at the whole ecosystem uh, looking at the at the binaries looking at the source code looking at the service that it's using you can figure out the the connections between the different parts of the infrastructure and uh, and find out more about the system and find more complex vulnerabilities and this is essentially how red teaming evolved, and red teaming involves testing the software, testing uh, the infrastructure, uh, testing the process around it, and also testing the people using it. So a red team engagement would not just uh, not just mean pen testing a single piece of software. It would also uh, involve things like doing reconnaissance on a company, collecting information about the company, collecting information about the endpoints, and uh, essentially going through all the thought process that an actual attacker would uh, would go through when approaching the company from, from the internet without any prior knowledge. So it's a very good opportunity to find uh, issues um, in your frameworks, in your security processes, and to test the the security awareness of your people as well.
0: Okay, so red teaming is almost like a level above to pen testing, that's what I'm getting from you. So red, red teaming is like anything goes with a company, you can use like phishing, email attacks, you can try and work out, you know, how to get into their software, reverse engineer their binaries. Whereas pen testing is much narrower scope around just around maybe one application, the the
1: company you use. Exactly. Red teaming is, is often called adver- Adversary Simulation. So it's a much, much more comprehensive type of engagement and, and usually open-ended. So as you said, anything goes in red teaming. Okay. So what about the kind of social engineering side of hacking?
0: Would that be something you do as part of red teaming? Um, recently, a friend of mine was buying a property and she was emailing her solicitor sort of back and forward getting ready to sort of go with the purchase of this property and when it came to transferring the deposit she paid the money and then she realized about the next day that the people she'd been dealing with weren't her solicitors at all and she'd paid the money to like some fraudsters so this is like a really good example of uh social engineering that i found you know very shocking because it happened to a close friend of mine but is that something we're kind of seeing more and more in terms of hacking isn't just about the technical side it's also about the the social side of how people can be vulnerable when you impersonate services
1: and tell them stories, yeah, exactly. so I think especially in the in the recent decade, there was a very um, huge surge of what I think uh law enforcement professionals called cyber enabled cr- crime. so essentially the schemes that existed uh, in the real world previously are moving into cyberspace, and a lot of that is uh, is something that uses social engineering so just relying on uh misleading people relying on creating interfaces and applications that uh appear to be legitimate and then uh, abusing those to uh to try to uh, essentially uh hustle people into into giving away information or or transferring money um so there is so uh, when i was a consultant we did uh, engagements uh which were specifically targeting this type of attacks and we specifically tested uh you know the security awareness of of employees at companies and we did uh, phishing campaigns but we also did um on-site engagements when we just you know showed up at the office dressed as i don't know electricians plumbers uh something like that and tried to get into the office and you know plant uh usb sniffing devices wi-fi sniffing somehow get into the network something like that and the sad thing was that it, it absolutely worked. So the saying then that if you you know just get a ladder uh, and look professional, you can get into any company because they are gonna you know think that you are there to fix the AC or something like that. So, um, and the problem is there is a huge gap between physical security and uh, cyber security. So most companies uh, when they design their offices. Uh, especially 10 years ago they didn't really think about you know where do these cables around where how big is our wi-fi range so applying these these classic techniques of just just deceiving people and getting into the premises was a super effective way of of uh gaining access to to the cyberspace of, of the company
0: yeah that's a really good point you raise i find that it, it almost seems a bit like um something out of a spy movie. Like I can imagine you guys dressing up as plumbers and trying to sneak into an office. I think a, a lot of companies, once you make it into their office, I imagine it's sort of fairly easy to compromise their systems because most of the ethernet ports you find dotted around the building, all you have to do is plug into those and bang, you're on their internal network straight away.
1: Yeah. That's a very sad tendency that we saw, especially yeah, back in those days that, um, yeah, it's it's something that my friend used to call Ferrero Rocher security when it's crunchy on the outside, but soft on the inside. So people people didn't really do segmentation back then. So you could very easily latch onto the guest Wi-Fi and get into the to the AD admin zone of a Windows network and the and one that's nice. So uh, yeah, uh, we saw some scary th- stuff. <laughs>
0: yeah, I bet you did. Um, so if someone wants to get into into this field, what kind of education or certificates do they need to go through? Can they just sort of, um, play around on sites like hack the box and other sites that you've mentioned, and then kind of apply for jobs or the certifications they need, or what's the process there?
1: Um, so if someone is just getting into this, my advice would be don't make the same mistake I did, because when I started out, I very specifically went after knowledge that was just hacking related. So. I read hacking articles, went on hacking forums, read books on hacking, and by the time I got to university, I could very, very confidently do ARP poisoning from terminal, and and everyone was impressed by that. But I couldn't do simple socket programming in C, which is which is kind of a thing that you should probably know before you do ARP poisoning. So if uh, if anyone's just trying to get into this field, first I would suggest uh, obviously learning about uh, hacking techniques and and uh, and uh, you know how to do exploitation but also to look into uh, the issues uh, that enable these kind of attacks so try to research you know what are the the problems with different frameworks and and try to understand those because that's uh, almost as valuable even more valuable than the knowledge that you get from learning the the different hacking techniques and in terms of uh, certificates um, i think the security community is very divided whether certificates are worth it or not. Some people collect them like pokey badges. Some people just say that, you know, I don't need the certificate to tell me what well, I know. But um, for me, I think it's, um, it's something that just gives you a good overview. I mean, I've never done a certificate where I haven't learned something, at least uh, from, the, from the course material. You always see a new trick, something that you haven't seen before, or it just, you know, gives you a refresher of, of the stuff you already know. So I think they are absolutely worth it. I hold some of the offensive security certificates myself, and you know uh, some people call them dated. But when uh, I talk to a candidate, for example, in, in a job interview, and they have the same certificate, at least you know I know that what are the things that I don't have to ask them about because they you know already went through all that when doing that certificate. Plus, it also gives you a chance to connect with other people. Like you know, uh, you just go up to someone with an OSCP and say hey i bet you didn't sleep for 24 for eight, 48 hours when you when you did that exam and they are like yeah i didn't <laughs> it's just you know it's just a bonding moment so i think they are definitely worth it uh there are a lot of courses i think out there with a lot from a lot of different companies um i think if someone wants to really get a certificate they just uh the best approach is just to look at the job adverts you know what companies are looking for and and go for those because you know uh these these things change quite often i think awesome so um awesome
0: so with all of this hacking knowledge that you have does it make you sort of super paranoid in everything you do in kind of normal everyday life so you download an app um to use for online banking and you think well do i need to reverse engineer this before i use it or you know when you go to a cafe and you log onto their wi-fi you like super suspect like how does it sort of apply to your normal everyday life? Do you view
1: everything through this hacker lens that you've acquired in your job? Um, I think I sort of do. I mean, it really depends on the type of personality you have, you know, how this 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 knowledge is going to affect you. But for me, I really, I'm really hard at adopting very new technologies. Uh, That's that's one of the impacts that it had on my on my life. I uh, do segregation. Uh, when i when I do my uh, online dealings, so for example I have a separate laptop just for doing financial transactions and no games go on that, no money applications go on that it's just for just for doing banking uh, and the same with my phones I have an Android phone which I use to you know just just mess around, take pictures, run applications, and then a separate one where I do uh, my banking if I have to do so in a way I don't take you know, extra steps. I don't have like super fancy firewalls installed on my computers, or or I don't run anything through a VPN because I think it just it just makes your life harder. But I do sort of air gap my 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 uh, environments that are I, I consider to be uh, sensitive. So um, I'm not paranoid, but but I'm cautious. <laughs>
0: Well, I tell you, you are paranoid to some extent if you're going through the trouble of having two phones, one for your banking and one for, one for non-banking. I think that, that's a bit of an eye-opener in itself. How would you say that you keep your eye on kind of the latest sort of pulse of what's happening in the hacking community? So you find out, how do you find out about the latest exploits um, in the industry?
1: Um, I personally like to browse was Reddit. Uh, some people say it's not the most up-to-date source of information but i just like the conversation that are that go on there i used to subscribe to a bunch of like rss feeds but the problem with those is uh the more you collect the the less you are going to learn from that because it's just such a huge flow of information that you're not going to be able to process it in the morning and uh you know you just accommodate a reading list that you're never going to finish um i also used to subscribe to a bunch of people on twitter uh, who I thought, you know, shared interesting things and, and, uh, articles. Uh, I think that's, that's one way of, uh, really keeping your on new stuff because, you know, that way you can be sure that you won't miss anything that people are talking about. So, um, I think it's not really worth monitoring the news because by the time, you know, a, an exploit or a malware or an issue hits the news, then it's old story. So, uh, it's much, much better to, to look on social media and 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 different feeds to uh, to get your uh, to get your information on new stuff. Okay, and when a new kind of technique comes out, which one of
0: the I think I'm right in saying one of the newer ones recently was this HTTP request smuggling that someone found, where you can basically, as I understand it, send kind of two HTTP requests adjacent to each other, and quite a lot of software seems vulnerable to this in that. It allows you to get the second request through maybe a proxy or something to the backend web server. So when a new technique like that comes out, do people basically take that and go, right, we're going to try that on all of these platforms that are offering bug bounties and see if any of those are vulnerable to it and then collect all the reward or how do you kind of, do you apply these, these new techniques to old um, software?
1: Yeah so that's that's definitely one of the things that happens so uh people who are who are doing bug bounties I think they're I mean if they are doing this professionally they're definitely on the lookout for anything new and then they're just going to integrate it into their own little pipeline of of uh, of scanning and then just hit all the targets that they are currently subscribed to and and try to get that uh, the other thing that usually happens is depending on the impact of the of the issue I think more they Authors are going to jump on it. So, for example, when, uh, like, when was it, two or three years ago, when the uh, when those huge Windows vulnerabilities dropped from the uh, from the agency leak. Uh, I think like three weeks later, we had uh, ransomware and malware that had incorporated the exploit code into themselves and, and just spread around the internet. And that is a very, very predictable pattern that, that happens with almost any of, the, of these issues. If it's wormable, then it's going to be incorporated into, into malware code sooner or later.
0: So I guess that is kind of the the darker side of hacking, if you like, that there'll be some people who take these these new exploits and are actually doing it for research purposes and trying to tighten up security. And then you've got the other set of people who are using this, this for bad. So this is constant cat and mouse game of trying to kind of keep the bad guys out and constantly patch your software when these new vulnerabilities get released.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there is among yeah besides ethical hackers there do exist black hat hackers uh, it's you know it's it's very difficult to to judge you know how many people are actually doing that or or who are behind all the large campaigns that we read about in the news but um it definitely exists and uh and as a you know as a offensive security function inside the company or, or as security engineers uh, it's very very difficult to uh, to bridge the gap between a vulnerability going live, being published, exploit code being available, and and just running through a patch through testing and, and applying it to our own systems. So yeah, it's a constant battle. Cool, awesome. Okay, well, thanks a lot for joining me today, Marcel.
0: It's been really interesting chatting Thank to you. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for inviting me. Form three are looking to double the size of our remote-first engineering team. If you'd like to help the world move money faster and enjoy working on complex technical challenges using the latest tech, feel free to check out the careers page in the description.